Welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Stories of Determination. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani Fossbinder. Like in nature, we see determined flowers and vines clinging to life and seeking light. So are Morning Glory people. And in this podcast, I'll interview writers, activists, artists, entrepreneurs, survivors, and thrivers, and trailblazers of all kinds. These are folks that have been determined to get over, under, around, and through the obstacles that face them, or to seize the opportunities that come before them. I find these people inspiring and amazing. I know you will too. It is my honor today to speak with Magali Morales. She is a mother, a writer, a spiritual counselor, and a bridge builder. She's always lived in the space between worlds, translating languages, cultures, and worldviews. She's Mexican and Guatemalan, growing up between the big city and her grandmother's farm. She loves science and spirituality. They can go together, you know. After 15 years as a trauma-focused therapist, she realized that people are much more likely to be emotionally injured than mentally ill, and that no healing is complete without spiritual development and social engagement. She was a psychotherapist and became a healer. So today, nothing feels more important to Magali than restoring health to our planet. And she tells us in no uncertain words that in order to do that, we have to change. Magali knows that if we want a livable planet, now is the time to join forces and transform the way we live. Thanks to ancient knowledge and modern technologies, we have the solutions. We must remove the obstacles, apply solutions, and learn from our mistakes. This is how we dream a new reality. Magali, I'm so glad you're here with me today on the Morning Glory Project. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Betsy. It's lovely to be with you. So Magali, I've been thinking a lot about this issue for a while, and I look in admiration at the eco-activists out there, and in my tiny ways, I am one, but on the bigger scale that you operate, I often look and I wonder, how do you keep going with this? It's got to be so hard. Well, you know, to be perfectly clear, I haven't been a nonstop, you know, in the trenches of the environmentalist movement. Um, you know, I was thinking about this. I'm like, wow, you asked me to kind of embody this side of my personality, the side of my work, but but I have many sides of my work. Um, mm -hmm. Well, you see them as integrated though, right? I mean... Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I think the biggest way I think about myself is, is somebody who believes that we need to heal on an individual level in order to heal on a collective level. So tell me what you mean by that. Well, what I mean is, you know, when um, I think people can't really feel um, the, the, what we're doing to the planet until their feelings are available. And I think there's so much oppression and violence that goes um, unseen in our society and also just you know this feeling of being shut down and distracted you know so how can people really feel what we're doing to the planet if they don't um, have the emotional room to make those connections hmm. well it's sort of maslow's hierarchy you know if i'm struggling exactly. with just basic existence i can't exactly think about the lofty issues of of climate change is that what you kind of mean Exactly. And also, it's really hard sometimes to see the connections between those things, you know, and um, people, you know, as soon as the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic began, 
people were like went to Costco and bought a whole bunch of toilet paper, <laughs> but they don't <laughs> real. I mean, the, the, the conversation about how that toilet paper is destroying forests in Canada kind of disappeared right. from the mainstream. So there are so many connections we can't make unless we really make an effort to pay attention. And how can we pay attention if we are too busy either distracting ourselves or like carrying our pain around? Or just trying to exist and trying to thrive. Yes, yes. But you know, in a way, it's like, I don't just think about the people who are poorest. The poorest people are not creating the greatest destruction. Mm. You know, there is a way in which being frugal is being green that goes unacknowledged. You know, when, um, when they try to sell you like all of these, you know, green products and everything, some of those things are very expensive, but people forget that it's like living simply is really the, the greenest thing you can do. It's not just about like spending great amounts of money on like, you know, eco gadgets or, or, you know, like vegan clothes or whatever it is. So, um, <laughs> actually, you know, I, I did a lot of thinking after you and I talked last time, um, and one of the biggest points I want to make is that that we can't solve collective problems with just personal solutions. So my my small efforts of not using disposable bags and trying to economize on those things. I mean, those are good things to do. I'm not criticizing those, but you're saying that we can't solve the big problem with little actions. Yes, because, you know, as long as the fossil fuel industry is doing what it's doing, as long as the military has this like massive budget and continues to like just waste energy in all these directions, not to mention, you know, harm humans and nature, um, then how good is it? You know, what, what good is it that a few mm. kind of privileged people can stop using plastic bags? Mm. Um, Mary DeMocker, the author of The Parents' uh, Guide to the Climate Revolution, made the point very clearly. She, she, at the beginning, she was like, you know, it's not about torturing yourself because you haven't gone vegan or you haven't gone zero waste. It's really about pushing for, you know, better laws that, that prevent some of this large-scale destruction that goes unseen from happening. So you really also connect the issue of climate change with the issue of justice. Of course, of course. So tell me how that weaves together for you. Mm -hmm. Well, it, this is a, actually at the heart of, of a lot of the you know debates in the in the climate justice mo movement. In some organizations say like we just we have to stop burning fossil fuels and that's like the great priority and we can't afford to look at you know racism <laughs> right now. But the truth is that historically, I mean, first of all, the climate crisis was brewed by the era of colonization. You know, there was a time in the 15th into the 16th century where a handful of European countries sliced up the world and conquered like every corner of it. And, and you know, talk about looting, like they pillaged and robbed and enslaved and exploited, you know, all of these indigenous peoples from all over the world. And that was the time that fueled, that financed the Industrial Revolution and that financed the development of Europe. And it also created this mindset of turning forests into dollars, hmm. you know, and plantations into dollars that continues today. That was the, you know, the beginning of the great, great environmental degradation 
of, of our planet. And of course, in many of those cases, it was people of color and poor people that were dominated. And their land, who were, and their yeah, land. Who were, who were exploited. Exactly. So in, in fact, in, in all of those cases, I mean, I, I'm hard pressed to find, you know, any exceptions. The truth is that people were exploited and remained, you know, because of the like creation of racism. I mean, racism is a product of colonization. And it's a really ingenious system to divide people and to oppress. And so because of that, um, the, the people who live in the poorest areas, the survivors of genocide and colonization and slavery, are the ones who are bearing the greatest brunt of the environmental destruction. Not to mention the fact that, you know, even when you look at urban areas, they tend to live in places that are more polluted, that have less access to, you know, healthy food and clean water and clean air. So one of the the great kind of dynamics in the climate crisis is that the people who had least to do with producing the crisis stand to bear the worst of its effects. So what you're saying here is that the history, the pattern of it, of this colonization perpetuates the poorest being poorer and being the worst recipients of the first effects of climate change. Exactly. But, you know, I, I think maybe we should backtrack and just first like define what the climate crisis is. Mm. Okay. So there's a lot of things that people don't understand about the climate crisis. And, and the main one is that it has to do with global heating, right? Um, it, because industry and the way you know we live has been fueled by fossil fuels like petrol and car and, and coal and gas, and we have been producing you know emitting carbon into the atmosphere and that warms up the planet. But there are you know there are some mechanisms that have regulated the Earth's um, climate for you know millions of years that are have been deeply disrupted now, and also they are exponential in their growth. So once you reach a certain level of this change, then it's really hard to reverse it or maybe impossible. Mm. So just to give you a very simple example, you know, as the planet is warmer, the forests burn more easily. So we have more forest fires. But the more forest fires burn, the more carbon is released into the atmosphere through the smoke. And the more likely it is that, you know, the planet gets hotter and then the more likely it is to, to have forest fires. It's perpetuative. That, yeah, that perpetuates itself. And if it can reach like this, this tipping point when you, where you can't go back. Same with the melting of the ice in the ice caps. When there is snow and ice, the white color reflects light and heat away from the planet. But the dark surface of the ocean absorbs more heat. So, you know, the warmer the planet, the more the ice melts, the more dark surface of the ocean we have, the more heat is absorbed. So these are only two examples. Of many, many, many. <laughs> of mechanisms that kind of uh, perpetuate themselves, making the planet hotter. So if we get to a certain point, for example, the ice on the whole planet could disappear so could the fresh water. You know, we could stop having rain and snow and essentially like 
you know, there would be only salt water and, and the level of the ocean would continue to rise and rise and it would actually gobble up entire coastal cities. So this is something very serious that affects the whole planet, you know, and one of the things we need to understand is that nothing can be separated. You know, you can't like take one pocket of the world and make it safe from climate change and like condemn the rest. It has to be a global effort. Exactly. So one of the reasons why this is so serious is because some of the carbon that's already in the atmosphere now is going to continue warming going forward. So even if we stopped using fossil fuels completely right now, it wouldn't be enough. You know, it won't be enough. It won't stop this process that's already underway. So right now, we cannot stop the climate crisis. We can mitigate it which is something I think totally worth doing, but we can't avoid it. It's too late. So this is part of why I wanted to talk with you about this, Magali, because this is not cheerful news you're giving, and it gives you no joy to share it that way, that we've already crossed lines that we can't go back over. And I'm guessing that doesn't make you popular for cocktail party conversation. <laughs> not at all. Not, I feel not that like... you strike me as a cocktail party kind of a lady, but. No, but I, I mean, I love friends and I love fun and I, you know, I am a very happy person. And, but the thing is, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like Cassandra, you know, the figure in Greek mythology that was always giving the, the bad news, the bad premonitions, and people were like, oh, you know, you're not, you're lying. It's not true. What you say mm. is, is not true. And then it happens. And then you're like, well, I told you so. I hate being the person who say to say, I told you so. But you're telling us so. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. I mean, especially as a parent, it's, it's, mm. it's something horrible. You know, I, I, to look at my young child who's only four years old and to know that we have condemned her generation into, you know, into a planet that may look entirely different in 20, 30 years, um, you know, desperately, desperately different and mm. a profound crisis. So I imagine that's part of what motivates you to keep telling these difficult things to inspire change. Yes, because I'd rather do something about it than do nothing. You know, I'd rather face reality than, than, than live in, in a bubble, <laughs> you know, right. I think it's, it's worth, it's worth trying. It's worth, I mean, mitigating the crisis is so much better than just letting it run rampant. And right now, you know, I keep saying to, to my, my friends as well, you know, if they gave us a pristine, like if humanity received the gift of a pristine new earth right now, with our current mindset, we would destroy it all over again. So it's the mindset in addition to our practices. Yeah, it's well, the mindset, the mindset that has to change. Informs the practices, doesn't it? Of course. You know, if you think that buying like, you know, 100 rolls of toilet paper at Costco has no price for nature, you're wrong. You know, if you think that having the luxury of toilet paper is more important <laughs> than allowing the forest to live, you're wrong. Mm. But, you know, those connections have been obscured by the way popular culture is, by the way the media operate. So, so you 
you operate in your life. You say you're a happy and joyful person, and I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) How do you get there? How are you able to get that when you know how troubled, not only the issues that that our planet is facing, but the social justice issues that are rampant and going mad right now? They've been going mad for a long time. It's just more conspicuous now. Exactly. How how do you find that place of joy? What what do you do to keep yourself going? You know, I think it has to do with the trajectory of my healing. When I was 18, I had a, a scholarship um, to a very prestigious international school in Britain to finish high school, and I was raped and became pregnant by rape. And um, so I was young, I was a woman of color, I had no money, I was alone. And, you know, that was like the worst time in my life, essentially. <laughs> I'm so sorry you went through that. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was horrible, but it, it taught me so much. It broke through all the layers in which my privilege in my life so far had kept me kind of coddled, you know. And, uh, and then I had to, of course, embark on a healing journey. And when I was in my healing journey... I understood one day, you know, I was working at a rape crisis center. So I was going to therapy. I was, you know, young in my 20s. I was underpaid and overworked. But I worked in this fantastic um, kind of grassroots organization where we gave services to survivors of sexual and domestic violence. And one day I understood. I'm like, it doesn't matter how hard I work at healing from my rape. I could be raped again tomorrow. Hmm. And that's when I knew it's like what we need is to heal the whole society. We need to heal sexism. We need to heal sexual violence. We need to change the way women and men operate and non-binary people and everybody. You know, we need to transform. If I want a safe world, I need to change it. I need to change this one. And now on behalf of your daughter too. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, sometimes it's terrifying to have a daughter who was a, a, a little girl of color growing up in this country, you know, and, and in this world. Because <laughs> my country is no, you know, my countries are not devoid of, of violence either. I mean, a lot of the violence, to be honest, a lot of the violence that happens in Mexico and in Guatemala comes from the United States. So, you know, I have a very complex relationship <laughs> with the United States. So do I. And I was born here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek. It's a different kind of complication. It's hard to be simultaneously grateful for the freedoms that exist and the ideals that are spoken about in this country. And then simultaneously with that, so horrified. Yes, yes, yes. And the thing is, you know, I keep coming back to this. Those freedoms exist only for people who look like you. Mm. You know, I'm not, I mean, and you are a woman, so there's freedoms that you don't have, but it's no illusion. I mean, the, the, this historical moment in the United States, it's really about grappling with its shadow. And the shadow of the United States is it was born of genocide and slavery and land theft. And it will never make any progress unless those things are addressed, I believe. Born of genocide, slavery, and land theft. That's a that's a rough way to enter existence, isn't it? And try it to is. be different and it'll, than that. Yeah, and and if you know if there is no atonement and reparations and truth, you know, then there can be no progress. And I think that's what you know that's what we're suffering now. That's you know it's um, 
it's white people who haven't grappled with their own racism who are you know clinging on to their white privilege so hard who really you know supported the current uh, white man in that white house to get where he is and continue some of them continue to enable you know his abuses so what i was talking about is how can you have collective healing if you don't have individual healing and how can you have individual healing if you don't have collective healing exactly and the same thing you know to, the same thing applies to my journey of um, healing from sexual trauma as to my journey as an environmental activist tell me that journey tell me how those parallel well you know, when I, so 20 years ago, I came to this country and I lived in a permaculture farm that was a kind of a, a budding eco village. It was a place where I met a lot of environmental activists. It was a place where for the first time I understood how much deforestation had happened here. And, um, and I, you know, I, I, it just dawned on me like, oh, wow, we are so far into the destruction of the world. You know, I would sometimes travel to Mexico to visit my family and I, I could see the clear cuts go on for miles and miles from the airplane. And also the land that was behind the farm where I lived um, was clear cut um, the, the year that I left. And every time one of those massive uh, Douglas firs fell, it was just like a, you know, a stake to my heart. It was a very, very painful process. But what I also understood is like, yeah, there are people out there who can't afford to care about the environment or work to protect the environment because they are either, you know, too poor, too oppressed, too stressed out or too wounded or too distracted. Mm. And so I realized that the problem is people, because this is the thing too. We have all the solutions. We've had all the solutions to the climate crisis ever since, you know, we found out about global heating 50 years ago. And ever since then, we've had all the solutions to this problem, but we haven't applied them. We haven't had the will to do that. Why is that? Well, because it would be taking the profits away from the biggest polluters, first of all. I mean, certainly, if you're going to talk about changing the fossil fuel industry, changing how factories pump things into rivers, and you're going to change the economy, the entire economy and how it's arranged. Yeah. And the fictions that go along with that, you know, economy, this idea that that the only healthy economy is one that grows continuously. I mean, this is not tenable in a finite planet. And it's not what indigenous people did before this. Right. I mean, exactly. They didn't try to expand their territory. They just tried to I mean, not that there weren't wars between tribes of indigenous people because there sure, certainly sure. were. Sure. But but it wasn't about ever growing, growing, growing. It was about existing with and in harmony with the land. Exactly. And also banking on, you know, your bioregion and like the biological wealth around you for your existence and the, you know, and the, and the, the for taking care of yourself and of the seven generations or more that came behind you, you know. So, you know, when the Awaswas nation lived in the area where I live here in, in Santa, in what's known today as Santa Cruz, California, they had like this tremendous biodiversity around them. And, you know, there was like the salmon season and there was the, you know, and the, the season of the deer and, they, you know, there was so much biological wealth around them that they never lacked for food. They just, all they needed to do is like take care of their environment and their environment took care of them. We're so far removed from that now. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and the, and the problem began as soon as like the, the, 
separation began. You know, this idea that what you do to the environment doesn't affect you or that even, you know, separation rules almost every area of our lives. You know, racism is a form of separation. Not caring about the homeless is a form of separation. Believing that the toilet paper that you buy doesn't have, you know, doesn't decimate the forest is a form of separation. So when you're talking about separation, you mean like a separation from between myself and the truth? And between ourselves and nature, ourselves and each other. I mean, one of the fascinating lessons of the coronavirus pandemic right now is that we are understanding how interdependent we truly are. Mm -hmm. But this culture, like, you know, Western industrialized extractive capitalist culture has perpetuated this myth that it's like, oh, you're free, you're independent. Look at you. You can have it all. You can go anywhere. Well, guess what? It has a cost. There's somebody growing your food. There's somebody bringing it to your table. There's somebody pumping the gas into your car. There's somebody else, you know, extracting oil from the ground for you to, you know, in order for you to have these so-called freedoms, you are plugged into entire systems. Well, I've often, I've often marveled at some of America's axioms, if you will, or when they say, you know, you have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And it's like, but wait a minute, somebody had to make the boots. Somebody had to find, you had to grow the cow and skin the cow and make the leather and tool it and all of those. So, so pulling oneself up, even, even the metaphor is inapt. It's just flawed. (laughs) Exactly. And so often, you know, it's, it's the people of color who are doing all the hard work who are obliterated in that metaphor. Well, they're making the boots and somebody else is pulling them up, right? Is yeah, the- and, and you are stomping on the ground that Native Americans took care of for thousands of years. So, so let me ask you this then, as we kind of come to the end of our conversation, because this you are a teller of the hard truths. How do you find hope then? And if you were going to instruct me, me with my white skin in my suburban life, what's the one thing I can do that really does make a difference? And how do you, do you find the impossible possible sometimes? Or do you just feel like you just, this is it, we're done. We're just fighting <laughs> our time. I think the, the impossible is always possible. I love to read Rebecca Solnit, for example, for the ways that she says, you know, there are things, there have been wonderful changes in society that we couldn't see coming, like the fall of the Iron Curtain or, you know, a certain, um, like the Arab Spring, I mean, like the Standing Rock, mm-hmm. you know, that there have been, um, it's just, or, you know, Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish woman who is an incredible activist. I mean, there are people who... Um, just when they're standing in the right place in the right time in history, they they turn the tide, you know, in massive ways. Mm. Well, the coronavirus pandemic is is making a lot of connections for many of us, mm. you know, because it's showing us how interdependent we are, showing us all the things that are essential and non-essential. It is showing how profoundly oppressed people of color have been in terms of not having access to healthcare and not, you know, having access to clean air, clean water. And that's why they're you know, dying in greater numbers. Well, it also showed, you know, when people in the first weeks in California, anyway, in those first weeks when so much was shut down, how much clearer the skies became. Just exactly. Just and that. that. And that, that was the lesson of like, you know, we environmental activists have been saying, we need to stop. We need to stop this train of destruction. And everybody's like, no, no, we can't stop. We can't stop. And then all of a sudden we stopped. I mean, we stopped very briefly. 
Yes. And and it's still too late. Like even if the coronavirus pandemic, you know, made all fossil fuels like, you know, stop being used all over the world, it still wouldn't be enough. But so I am open to the to the miraculous and the and the fortuitous and, and just the ways in which people can, you know, humans can learn. But th- this is what I want. Okay. And maybe it's gonna sound strange. I am at peace with death. You know, I through my spiritual practices, I've explored profoundly the relationship with death. I know that death is just a transformation. I know that it's nothing to be feared. So I'm not scared of dying. What I want is for us to get to the place where we can deserve a good planet, you know, like where if we were handed a new earth, we wouldn't destroy it. But the first thing we need to do is commit to this one, you know, like right here. So I want us to see all the connections, you know, to live from a place of understanding our profound unity and interconnectedness and interdependence. You know, I want people to to see like, wow, agricultural workers have been denied citizenship, have been denied rights, have been treated horribly. And all of a sudden we're singing their praise and saying they're essential. Well, let's make them really essential. Mm. You know, let's give them a pathway to citizenship and let's, you know, protect their rights. And let's, you know, and let's change the agricultural system so that we don't expose them to pesticides anymore. And we mm. can all, you know, grow a tremendous amount of food here to feed like the region. So how do you restore yourself? <laughs> how do you restore yourself to keep keep this because this it can get grim. Of course. And it is. And I don't want to pretend it's not. Both the social justice issues are grim, the environmental justice is grim, the political mess that we're in is grim, the certainly the coronavirus. How how do you restore yourself? Well, I have, you know, I, because I've burned out on the job before, I have some really great self-care um, habits. And um, one of my guiding principles is if I'm going to look at the worst that humans do to each other, which I have, you know, because I used to be a therapist for survivors of mm-hmm. political torture. And I, I've heard, you know, terrible, terrible things that people do to each other. But then I have to give myself the best. And what that is, is having a really simple lifestyle is surrounding myself with love, going deep into my spiritual practices and growing a food garden that makes me so happy having deep friendships, being creatively involved in writing my first novel. And, you know, I I feel like I don't need vacations because I travel with my mind while writing this (laughs) book, you know. So I, I have my own thresholds for bad news. I mean, sometimes I, I'm never not aware of the news. And of course, the, the news that is disseminated in the media is always usually the bad news. Right. So I look for the good news. But also, sometimes I don't read the news with a lot of detail. Sometimes I'm just aware of what's happening, but I don't need to know the details because the details are sometimes what really triggers, you know, mm-hmm. my own trauma. So it's about knowing enough and not delving too deep. Exactly. And also really just making sure that my 24 hours of my day contain lots of nurturing activities that I enjoy with the people that I love and um, and with meaningful work. You know, mm-hmm. so I feel very honored that I get to help other people heal. I feel really honored that to belong to a community of really, really intelligent and creative activists who love the earth profoundly. So that is, yeah, I, I love my little family. And I love being a mother, you know, even mm. though it's terrifying, it's also wonderful. And uh, that's how I nurture myself. So Magali, how, if someone wanted to reach you for the kind of work that you do, you do 
what you call spiritual counseling. Yes. I do spiritual counseling, evolutionary astrology, and shamanic healing. And people can find me at my through my website, www.magalimorales.com. Thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project today. I feel like we could talk for maybe hours and hours, but our time <laughs> is limited in this conversation. I have a feeling that we'll be having some more. Well, I would love that, Betsy. Thank you so much for having me here and for listening to my like big bombs of information. We have to face those things. Thanks so much. I agree. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. <laughs> my conversation with Magali Morales today was about one one hundredth of what I want to talk with her about. As somebody who's an environmental activist, also a therapist, also a spiritual healer, and also one who comes from an ancestry of indigenous people, she just has a different perspective than I'm ever capable of having on my own. And I always, I want to learn that stuff. You know, it's really easy these days to, particularly for those of us who are, are white or have levels of privilege in America or other countries, it's easy to get defensive when we're told that we don't know something. And I'm really working on that. I'm really trying to be as open as I can to looking at something through eyes that are different than my own. That's really why I'm having all these conversations on the Morning Glory Project. I want to learn what it's like to be you. I want to learn what you know. A few things really stood out, and that is how different climate change is from the perspective of privilege versus the perspective of people of color who sometimes lack those privileges and how those folks are more vulnerable sooner to the effects of climate change. I'm also really was inspired when Magali talked about that when you're going to deal with the worst of things, you have to also let yourself have the best of things. You have to be happy and find joy. I think that a lot of activists and a lot of us who are trying to particularly in this era when there's so much unrest and disturbance and fear about the direction in which our nation has been going. We feel guilty for taking time off. You know, I feel like I should be writing postcards and making calls and conducting the census and doing a million things. But Magali reminds me that, you know, we have to replenish. You often hear the axiom, you know, this isn't, this isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. Well, I don't like that metaphor. That just means I have to run forever. Instead, it's really a series of sprints. We have to run hard and work hard for the things that we believe in to protect our culture, to protect our neighbors, to protect ourselves, to protect the planet. But then we have to rest. So it's really a long series of sprints, and we rest in between. That's a good little extra bloom to hold on to today. You know, rest between the sprints and then get back up and run again. If you have an interest in reaching Magali or finding out more about what she does, by the way, she writes the greatest blogs. They're candid and funny and heartfelt and raw. You can find her 
at magalimorales.com. That's M-A-G-A-L-I-M-O-R-A-L-E-S.com. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project today. I'm so happy to have spent a bit of time with this beautiful person and happy that you got to hear as well. If you like this episode or others of the Morning Glory Project, please let us know. Write a review, subscribe, share it with a friend. That helps us out and helps us hang around here for a while. Until next time, I hope that you can find a way to bloom.